Welcome back to Inside Asia. I'm your host, Steve Stein. I'm opening this episode with a question. What is community? It's changed, I'd argue, not by definition so much, but in terms of what people have come to expect from it. And I'm putting the emphasis here on the word expect. In our digital world, joining a community can be as basic as adding one's thoughts to a chat, then leaving, or as complex as building a movement and enlisting global followers. There are even names for these modes of engagement. In the first instance, post a controversial or unpopular message, and you're called a troll. In the second instance, say or do something big, rash, or daring, and you're branded as an influencer. In this crazy and mixed-up world of digital communities, these traits foster both envy and derision. My guest this episode, Kai Soto, suggests that something's been lost in our rampant drive to build communities solely on the foundation of datasets. That's what the world of digital social media has done for the most part. Some good has come from it, and I wouldn't be so bold to suggest it hasn't, but something has gone missing as well. My conversation with Kai tries to get to the bottom of it. But before we get started, a few words about our sponsor, Quilt AI. They too use datasets, but in an effort to help large organizations use the internet more purposefully. It's looking to reverse fractures in society and generate empathy, while helping organizations understand their consumers and beneficiaries much better. They give time and money to causes they care about and in service to people and planet. Inside Asia is pleased to be associated with Quilt AI. For more information, do check them out at quilt.ai. Kai Elmer Soto, we have to begin with a name. I'm, uh, I'm uh, the grandson of refugees. Um, we are Chinese, and we ended up in the Philippines. So Soto is actually a name that, uh, a certain name that we've uh, bought in order to be nationalized. My sur- my real surname is a Chinese surname named Ting. Yeah, and that's the origin of it. You know, we... Uh, you bought it like a URL bought it? Exactly. That's in my grandparents' time. That's yeah. exactly what they did. They did, did some domain search. But yeah, it was just uh, refugees and um, we made Philippines our home. Uh, and then subsequently, um, when I turned 16, we... Uh, we then moved to Canada, and that was home um, until I moved here to Singapore 10 years ago. Tell us more about you. I am uh, a, uh, now a photographer, um, I'm an artist, and I think at the end of the day, um, I'm just fascinated by how people kind of come together and collaborate with each other, you know, as an immigrant to Canada at a young age or, you know, moving to Singapore much later in life. And also living in Canada where if you lose the keys to your front door, your first thought is, I am going to die unless my neighbors let me in. Because of the cold. Because of the cold. Uh, And wildlife. But but this idea of, you know, um, being in the service of others and also um, being served by others, um, working with each other is something that's just been a part of my DNA. You know, my father's a a small... um, business owner and trader and um, he's always said that you know the most important currency that he's had is you know the the trust uh, in others and the trust that people have um, 
uh, have of uh, for him and of him. So yeah, so that's like that's it. We're going to talk about your book in a minute. Are you a first-time author, or have you written other things? Now, first-time author, first-time caller, Steve, to your podcast too. Okay. Yeah, and it was. Um, we'll talk more about the book, but it was the intent was never to write a book. The intent was to just share what my partners and I have been so curious about, and we're starting to learn, and we're starting to see a bit of a framework. So our intent was actually to just write a handbook, a guidebook to give away to folks until. Uh, goodness of a few people just you know encourage us to write a manuscript and then we got published and, and and we'll come to it but tell us before you became an author before you were a photographer uh, what did you do what what were the those impressionable years of your life what were they spent doing I was lucky enough to have been um, in Toronto when um, internet banking started and so my career has always been in technology um, on the internet side and also on the social side um, I got to join a very young eBay where if you think about what is fascinating about eBay is that it not only built an auction platform but what it built is a proof point that people are mostly good right? if you think about it we are choosing to send money to a complete stranger somewhere across the world just because we completely have confidence not only in the platform but in that other human being that we've never met that they're gonna send us exactly the thing that they described and um, so I just saw the power of um, the technology at the time. So you were testing the idea with PayPal that um, people can be trusted and the technology can ensure that trust. Is that what you mean? That's what eBay was, right? That's what eBay is. That platform is solely about trust. And you know, they're one of the pioneers of um, kind of like that um, the the trust-based platform. So yeah, so I just like that was the beginning of my career, and I've been in um, technology ever since, and I've always been able to go and participate at the early stages of these platforms that are connecting people. You know, I went from eBay to uh, Facebook, Facebook to Instagram. Mm. Tell us about those times. When when were you at Facebook and Instagram? Oh, Facebook was fun. Um, I found Facebook and Facebook found me um, through a friend and she told me that they were starting to look at uh, putting an office in Canada. Uh, they've had sales folks uh, around but never had an office and so they asked if I would consider doing it and I actually told them that uh, I am very interested, but I could probably name 10 other human beings that are far more capable at you know, building out a sales office for them. And thankfully, they were um, kind enough to just ask, well, what would you like to do? Mm. And uh, I had an answer because right before this interaction, I took a sabbatical because I was at a startup um, that we were able to sell. So uh, my wife asked me, uh, what would you want to do next? And I had an answer. 
you know, I said, I would love to join Facebook. And there's a very particular why Facebook, because again, as an immigrant, right, I left my home country when I was young. I've been away from my relatives and, you know, childhood friends. And Facebook's allowing me to reconnect with these people. Um, that I would go join Facebook if and only if I am able to work on international because I want to go back to my roots uh, of, um, you know, um, having grown up in Asia. And I want to work on the product, not on the marketing side, not on side. I want to work right in the guts of the product, the platform. I want to get my hands dirty. Were you technical that way? I was not. Um, I think uh, it's kind of like I can read code, but I can't write code. So, um, yeah, so that, you know, when they asked me, what would you like to do instead of uh, running the sales office? I said, I'd like to be on your international product and I'd like to help you grow outside of North America. And so I got to do both. I got to start the office. Um, Facebook's kind of first office was in my living room in Toronto, uh, in Canada. Um, And then I got to work on international and uh, got to be there when uh, a few of us led by uh, two gentlemen, um, uh, first is Chamath, um, who's now at Social Capital, and then Javier Olivan. They were trying to figure out a dilemma that most internet companies, if not, there, there's not been a single internet company that's hit this plateau problem, right? They always knew that Facebook has the potential to grow beyond what any other internet company before it could go because of these social connections. But they also knew that they could no longer just rely on um, kind of like uh, instincts, marketing instincts. And so the mantra then is like, well, behind the people are numbers. We need to really understand the numbers. And that's really the beginning of a uh, consumer social uh, company relying on uh, data scientists to bring light to the things that we cannot make sense of. And I was able to help pioneer um, a discipline called growth which is funny enough you know now there are growth schools around the world there are growth hackers and you know growth managers as but at the time that that uh, discipline did not exist we needed to create it out of necessity to help Facebook continue to grow beyond um, the natural ceiling that most internet internet companies were facing. So when you say the numbers behind the people, are you referring to the algorithms that help identify their tastes, preference, interests, communities? Yes. Um, if you're a Star Trek fan, right? Uh, I am. So please proceed. Uh, excellent. I yeah. just I saw you tingle a little there. Um, you kind of the internet companies before Facebook were more like Captain Kirk, you know, we're just going to beam down into that planet, you know, and the first three people that land or they get beamed down usually die, you know, (laughs) and I'm just going to feel my way through this and I'm, you know, I'm going to use all my instincts. (laughs) We were more, we realized that we needed to be more like Spock, 
right? <laughs> where logic and rationality has to have to um, override you know all these kind of critical thinking flaws and just because once you scale to the level where Facebook was where it you know the 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 utility of it has become so instrumental in so many people's lives around the world you can no longer guess you can't empathize sympathize you cannot be compassionate towards you know um uh towards someone who lives in lagos nigeria like i can't guess what that nigerian would need from that platform uh, however we don't have the scale capacity nor time to be able to speak to all of those folks so we actually just have to go look at the data the numbers to see what their behaviors are and what they were using the platform for and what they need it for and so instead of crystal balling we are using data science to understand and predict uh, what they need from us i have to ask the question yeah i mean doing what you did then um, building on data creating data sets and then seeing years later how some of that data is being used did you ever in your wildest imagination you know envision that data would be used to in some ways manipulate people's patterns and what they like and listen to and receive i can't answer for everyone or anyone i can only answer for myself and you know look uh, i'm not that prescient right and we have to we have to take a step back because context is so important, right? You know, like, so I joined Facebook in 2008. Um, I think there were about 400 employees or less scattered all around the downtown Palo Alto. We didn't even have one campus. And the first one we moved into was the, um, the Sun Microsystems one. Uh, we were just trying to figure it out. You know, um, we were, the reason why we had to invent the discipline of growth is because that growth was not guaranteed. So to say that we could see far ahead and see how it could get manipulated, now we've got the hindsight of just, you know, when history and pattern recognition say, oh, we we should have seen it. But no, it's like, it, it's, um, Mark, Zuckerberg uh, built a product that people needed and wanted, right? So growth for Facebook, my participation of it anyways, is we simply had to remove the friction points that is preventing this rocket ship from being able to fly higher and faster. But it was happening so fast. And we just saw that the data gives us a lot more clarity not into a prediction of what where the future will be but just a clarity into uh, what people may need over the next little while so no it hasn't and i think that you know i have you know my own context around you know what has happened what is going on but i will say also that there it is there is a balance between all of the things that are negative with some of the things that are positive. And ultimately, 
technology is a means to accelerate what is already happening anyways it's not like we are inventing or reinventing a human behavior we are simply amplifying and accelerating all the good and the bad of it but no no prediction yeah okay um your book get together uh to what degree was the creation and the crafting of the book informed by your time working in the social media space it was completely informed by it um, for two reasons, if I may. You know, so I m- mentioned the phrase, uh, behind the people are numbers. And uh, closing the, the thought on your last question around, could we have predicted where the reliance of data would have taken us? The answer is no. But I think that um, what I have learned is that behind the numbers are people. And if we lose sight of that, then we end up building soulless, addictive products that, uh, whose sole purpose is to mine us for what you know the economy that we're in right now needs, which is attention. And as an aside, you know, um, I think that Steve, you you've been in the technology field for a long time as well, right? But when you and I started, it's not like it was obvious, you know. It's we went left when everyone was going right, and I have an opinion on this, which is that the version of you know kind of going left when everyone went right today is going deeper into understanding people. Uh, Today where data is readily available and in absolute bonkers abundance, when the code has been written, literally, um, we have software engineers, product designers who at some point in time will become kind of like the the builders of our world, you know, the, the bricklayers. But who's stepping back to think about the larger design of it? And so my version of my going left when everyone's going right is kind of going back more into a fundamental understanding, not, not in a scientific way or an anthropological way, but just like pausing and going, you know, how do we all interact and want to interact? And just hopefully remind people back to their first principles of, us you know kind of not bowling alone being able to do things together what does that actually mean and so yeah so it's like you know like um, my time at facebook instagram and and ebay you know kind of informed where i went with the book which is i want to understand now the people behind uh the numbers and uh, I'm also fascinated. So uh, my two friends and partners, uh, Bailey Richardson and Kevin uh, Wynn, and I are so curious about uh, the topic of community. Um, we were all practitioners. So Bailey was one of the first employees of Instagram and along with her uh, then manager, Josh, they. 
architected this idea of community being the conduit between uh, Instagrammers, the users, and the product builders. Um, and then Kevin uh, is uh, um, the second employee of Creative Mornings, and he helped Tina um, bring Creative Mornings from, I think, three cities to about 125 cities. So we were practitioners, and I was at eBay um, uh, helping lead the community team there. But here's the thing. Community feels so magical when it's in our lives, but they do not form by magic. Um, and in fact, this kind of whole thing, this uh, book, uh, my partnership um, with Bailey and Kevin started with us kind of debating the value of community for businesses. Because you have to remember that I, at the time, was in this very kind of hardcore growth quant role, right? It's like, if you can't measure it, and it's bullshit, you know, it's like, it, you know, there's no room for it. Um, but I just knew that it felt magical when I had it because I had my time at Instagram, right? And so after Facebook, I went over to Instagram and I saw the power of Instagrammers coming together, collaborating with Instagram to build a product. It, it was just magic. The thing is that I just could not define what community is. If I had to explain to a seven-year-old, I couldn't. Yeah. And that's the beginning of it. Is it, is it that... Um, it was headed down a path with Facebook, Instagram, other social media platforms in good faith, attempting to create connections between people in various parts of the world. And its intentions seemed right and good. And in fact, indeed, there were communities that were being built. There were, there were associations, there were affiliations, there were, uh, you know, uh, similar interests were being explored. Um, wonderfully interesting creative things started to happen. And then it started to drift in some ways, it feels like. It, it, it became a tool for self-promotion. It became this idea of how can I look or how can I be presented or, you know, all of a sudden everything became about the one instead of about the many. It, it, it's just an impression that I had. And, and I've lost some faith over time watching and involving myself mm -hmm. as well. It, it feels to me like it, it maybe didn't hit a wall, but it started to you know, it started to get rutted. <laughs> and and now it feels to me like you're saying you're, you're, it's time to pause, rethink this, and before we go much deeper on this, really ask ourselves as a species, what is community? And is community even the right word for it? Communities feel really magical when they're in our lives, um, but they do not form by magic. So it just led us to pulled the thread on our curiosity and we started going out to meet with uh, ordinary people who are living these extraordinary lives by gathering people together to do extraordinary things. In the old way. So I'll, if I may, I'll share an old way. I believe what you're saying is old way is kind of like us getting together. Pre-technology. Yeah, pre-technology and then I'll give you one or two examples of the use of technology for communities that are uh, powerful. So we just went around and uh, we met with 
people who, ordinary people who are gathering people uh, together. Um, one is, you know, um, a gentleman named Hector who um, created We Run Uptown, which is a running club in uh, upper uh, Manhattan. And he was gathering eventually hundreds of people on a, you know, um, on a summer day, this was weekly, and they would all run together. And we just went around meeting Hector. Uh, we met and spoke to a gentleman named Gavin who started the Cloud Depreciation Society. You know, these are 20-somewhat thousand people strong. This is before um, even like kind of Instagram. And they would go on the website and share photos that they've taken through their digital camera, download that, and, you know, just because there's a group of people who appreciate clouds and shared interests shared interests you know shared purpose and um and, and what were you looking for as you met with these people are you looking for you know what what is the thread that holds them together what is the common set of principles that allow for successful communities uh, what was the search what did the search entail yeah it's um this the search was uh to understand how communities get started, how they stay together, and then how do they grow. And so here's what we learned. We'll, we'll, um, what we've learned is that building a community is similar to starting a campfire. Um, first, you need to spark the flame. This is you gathering your people together, kind of like you're kindling, right? Um, and then um, once you have that spark going, you need to keep stoking the flame and you got to keep your people together. And then uh, if you want that flame to grow, you need to pass a torch to other people and give them the opportunity to lead the community. Kai, are you saying that this is a lost art form? That people have somehow forgotten that the, these are, or are you saying it's now time to become more proactive in building genuine communities because the world needs them? Yeah, it's, it's actually, I think, more fundamental than that. I, so I aspire to be a first principles thinker, right? And so if we don't understand it, then we can't really build and nurture it in the way that we want, you know, whether, you know, or some or something, a community that is more positive. Um, but it comes down to even the definition of community, right? What does it actually mean? And so we met with hundreds of um, community practitioners, um, people who are uh, gathering people monthly to sing in the choir, um, run groups, like I said, driving enthusiasts, uh, people who uh, want to save the ocean. And so based on our observation and research from these community practitioners, um, the, our definition of community is the following. It is a group of people uh, who keep coming together over a shared purpose. And that sounds elementary, right? But let's break it down. Mm. So 
it is a group of people. It's not this esoteric idea, right? It's not like a bunch of users. And, you know, it's not Facebook with Mark Zuckerberg during the quarterly earnings saying that, you know, our 2 billion community of users. It's like, let's, it, it's actually a group of people, right? And so being specific about the people that you want to gather together um, who keep showing up for each other uh, the death of a community is one-offs. Uh, a lot of corporations and businesses um, use the phrase community in conjunction with what in essence is a networking one-off event, a launch party, a marketing campaign. And so just like with your friends, right, or, uh, or people that you rely on, you just want to keep showing up over and over and over for each other. Mm. And then there is this shared purpose, and that shared purpose has to be clear, and one that is not just defined by one person. Mm -hmm. So that's it. That's what a community is, right? It is a group of people uh, uh, who keep showing up for each other with a shared purpose. Yeah, I want to debate something with you. Sure. Um, and you you have said in your book that um, the who comes first, mm -hmm. not the why. Mm -hmm. Could you explain that? It's not a true community unless you are building with your people, not for your people. Yeah. So a metaphor here is, you know, if you and I uh, are going to host a dinner party, right? We can uh, do the thing where we've got the um, yeah, places for everyone, plates set up, we've got people serving the food, everything's cooked, and people just have to clink the glass to say that it's, you know, table's ready and we all sit down. Right, so the meal was built for us. Instead, a community is more like a uh, potluck dinner, right? Where hey, bring you know a dish uh, that evokes your childhood, right? For me, it'll be you know, um, I would likely bring you know garlic rice and uh, chicken adobo. Right, that's just home for me, and you know, what's your version of it, Steve? What yeah, I don't know, fried chicken. I have to say, yeah, yeah, yeah. But 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 I mean, to, to that degree, you're 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 you're. There's the possibility. Well, there there's the very high likelihood, depending on how eclectic that group is, it's going to be as varied as varied can get. Exactly. Does it necessarily hang together as a meal? Isn't that the beauty of it? Right. We don't know. It may or it may not. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, but popsicles and white rice isn't going to cut it. I'm just saying. I'm just saying. To, this is this is goes back to the question, right? Which is, I get the who. So you want a lot of really interesting mm -hmm. people in the. But mm -hmm. if you don't have a theme mm -hmm. against which, like mm -hmm. this is Mexican night, so mm -hmm. bring your favorite Mexican, mm -hmm. you really, in some ways, you lose the opportunity mm -hmm. to really do something that really takes it the next step. Yeah. Which is why I ask you, why the who before the why? Yeah. I mean, in, in so many ways, Kai, I mean, when, I, when I've, you know, when in, in some of the things that I've built, the community I've built with the Asia Corporate Leadership mm -hmm. Council, it's around common shared interest among senior executives for common or for, for, for purpose, yeah. corporate purpose mm -hmm. in Asia Pacific. That theme then drew the people who were committed to it. Maybe I got this wrong, and that's why I'm really keen to understand your take on this. Mm -hmm. What we have observed from hundreds of community practitioners is that they did not start with a why, they started with three questions. Uh, they started with, who do I care about? Mm -hmm. Who do I share an interest, identity, or place with? 
and who do I want to help? If you gather the who and you start with the who, the purpose becomes a shared purpose as opposed to I'm going to define what that purpose is and I'm going to hope that people will self-select into it. Mm. And that the, there it is, that word self-select. I mean, one of the challenges we see with um, the world of social media is that people are self-selecting. In other words, they're choosing to listen or to watch or to read things that reinforce their own beliefs and therefore be, they become a bit siloed in terms of and, and and so the community becomes robust because there's lots of people may think and act and believe that way but you miss the opportunity to into incorporate diversity and and varied opinions which we know from the very essence of innovation that's where the great stuff comes from diversity of view so so how do you jive the two I'm not sure if I can jive the two, but if I may, I'll share um, I'll share some stories about uh, groups of people who have come together um, using social media. If we want to make this slightly bit less esoteric, a bit more less abstract, and a lot more practical, if you are in a corporation and if you ask yourself, are we building for people? So are we building an event for people or are we building with people? So instead of a, and I'll give you some examples of build with, build for, right? Um, build for is a conference, build with is an unconference. We mentioned the dinner party, uh, you know, set table dinner party is building for, building with is a potluck dinner. Uh, a beautiful example of this is, you know, if you, Think about the evolution of uh, TED Talk. And by the way, you know, one other way for myself to think about what a community is and what it is not, I imagine a room with a bunch of chairs and I picture where these chairs are facing. If they're facing all towards one direction, maybe up to a lectern, you know, or to a head table, then that's likely building four. Mm. But if the chairs are kind of haphazardly facing each other, where there's no kind of center really, then more than likely that's build with. Mm. So if you think about the evolution of TED Talk, right? A uh, bunch of people, I think circa 1984, would gather 18-minute um, talks, you know, a few thousand people in the auditorium, and absolute wisdom bombs are being dropped on people. They started recording for those and sharing it to the world. Um, eventually, they moved over from TED Talk where it's predefined, it's a conference built for you, to TEDx, mm. where there are chapters in cities all around the world where chapter leaders can raise their hands and go this is what I would love to I'd love to first lead and organize um, and then uh, that group of people would work together to build that TEDx for their chapter so a successful case of building a global community because they built with each other and they understood their who and not necessarily why who 
these are people who are really curious, people who want to share what they have learned with each other. And the why kind of comes out after that. Kai, one last question. The role of the organizer, the one whose vision, you know, starts this or kicks this off. Um, as you grow and, and, and take the kindling and add the logs and build that fire, what is the, in your opinion, the greatest single thing that that organizer can do to curate, facilitate, further the endeavor? So what we, um, what we say about um, communities is that amateurs manage communities, uh, but true community builders and practitioners um, find other leaders and nurture that leadership in others. It's hard enough to get a community started, so sparking that flame. And it's really hard to keep people together. The key there is just repetition, repetition, repetition. You just have to keep showing up um, for each other. But the key to then being able to scale a community that continues to be soulful or retains a soul or the intent of that community is actually being able to pass the torch to others. Mm. Uh, I'm a big fan of Marshall Gans. Uh, he's a professor in the Kennedy School of Government. And he has a definition of leadership that I prescribe to. So he says that leadership is um, creating the conditions to enable others with a shared purpose um, to uh, be able to perform that leadership. And so the key to community building and nurturing is leadership. There is someone who is stepping up, who keeps opening the doors for others, who will be capable of setting aside in a way their own ego and be willing to build with others and that's the only way you you know alone we are limited uh, but together we extend our capacity and it's also just a lot more fun right it's kind of like when you know when i mean i was going to say when we were younger but even to this day if you're about to throw a dinner party right or a party you know you, you i still wonder are people gonna show up you know, right <laughs> maybe it's your cooking maybe it's my cooking you know it's that chicken adobo that i just haven't quite nailed from my grandma's recipe but you know you 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 just you just have to keep showing up you have to pay attention to the people who are showing up and most importantly you have to kind of Look for those people within that group of people who are keep, who keep raising their hands, who are doing something above and beyond differentially, who could potentially could potentially be a co-leader with you, mm. so you can pass a torch. Because you know, it does get hard and difficult when we're trying to enable others 
towards you know uh, a shared direction and it is less difficult less lonely and way more fun when we have others around us uh, who can share the load, load and that ownership and therefore you know again with communities build with not build for don't manage communities lead communities and look for other leaders amongst you who can come and play with you yeah Kai, you may have struck upon one of the most centrally important themes of our time. Um, if ever we needed communities or a sense of community with all these changes and all the complexity, it's now. Uh, I've learned a lot just by listening to you today. So I thank you for taking time. You're welcome, Steve. Thanks for listening. That was my conversation with Kai Elmer Soto, author, artist, and community builder. Our conversation is only a small sampling of what's at stake when we consider the central importance of community in our lives. Get Together, a book by Kai, Bailey Richardson, and Kevin Huynh, is an attempt to reimagine what communities can and perhaps should be in an era of rapid change, disruption, and dislocation. Showing up for each other, as Kai puts it, is a central theme, and that's different from chiming in, taking space, and being seen. As alluded to at the outset of this episode, in our time-starved lives, we move in and out of tech-enabled discussions with such speed and alacrity that we've lost some of the skills necessary to establish trust and build community. There are missed opportunities both in and outside of work, and the real sacrificial lamb in all of this is a sense of common purpose. Of course, COVID hasn't helped. Throughout the world, most of us have spent more time apart from friends and colleagues than in any time before. To some degree, we've learned to adapt and make do, but in other ways, something's been lost. We're social animals, always have been and always will be. Moving back out into the world is proving for some a stressful affair. We've been conditioned to fear that too much face time could have infectious consequences. At some level, this new reality has imposed itself on the way we show up and engage with others. Some of my listeners might disagree, but I ask you, is it possible that COVIDitis has earned its place on the long list of cognitive biases? I don't want to drift off topic here, but what I'm suggesting is that community or the practice of showing up for one another in its true sense is in short supply these days. Digital platforms like Facebook, Instagram, or LinkedIn have denigrated the meaning and in some instances hijacked the concept to its own profitable ends. That may sound harsh and many soulful users of social media likely won't agree, but here nonetheless is my challenge during this holiday season. Ask yourself, what do you care most about? Find a community that shares in that concern. If it doesn't exist, create it. If it does exist, show up and keep showing up. Maybe then the true meaning of community will come roaring back. Thanks for joining us here on Inside Asia. And if you haven't checked out our new website, please do. We're fast approaching 200 episodes, all searchable and covering everything from corporate purpose and sustainability to future tech, future economy, geopolitics, and more. Each episode posting is accompanied by our weekly newsletter. So if you prefer reading to listening, now you can. Our newsletter includes links to other valuable resources and insights and references to earlier episodes on related topics as well. 
Over the past four years, we've featured a wide range of regional thought leaders, business heads, and operational insiders. Hear what they have to say by visiting us at www.insideasiapodcast.com. And as always, we thank you for listening. Thank you.